Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, And on today's episode, I have a special guest host. Dr. Stephanie Wyrock is back hosting on the podcast. And today, she brings on a wonderful guest, Dr. Michael Weimper. So Dr. Weimper received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Industrial Psychology and a Bachelor of Science degree in Health Science from California State University, Northridge. He received a certificate in physical therapy from that institution in conjunction with UCLA hospitals and clinics. Weimper later received his Master's of Public Health degree from UCLA in Health Services Administration and his Doctorate in Physical Therapy from the EIM Institute for Health Professions in Louisville, Kentucky. He has been an active member of the APTA. He has served as a member of the APTA's Task Force on Physician Ownership of Physical Therapy Services, as a member of its Committee on Physical Therapy Practice, as the Association's Chairperson on its Task Force on Reimbursement, on the Board of Directors for APTA's California Chapter and National Private Practice Section, and as a trustee of APTA's Congressional Action Committee, now known as PTPAC. Weimper received the prestigious Robert Dykus Award from the Private Practice Section of the APTA in 2000, and he received the Charles Harker Policymaker Award from the APTA Health Policy Administration Section in 2011. And Stephanie, she has been a host on here before. She is a physical therapist at Physical Therapy and Sports Medicine Centers in Orange, Connecticut, She received her doctor in physical therapy and master of science in clinical investigation from Washington University in St. Louis. She has served as a consultant for a multi-billion dollar company to develop a workplace injury prevention program, which resulted in improved health outcomes, OSHA recordables, and decreased health costs for the company's workforce. She has served on multiple national task force for the APTA and actively lobbies for healthcare policy issues at the local, state, and national levels of government. So congratulations to Stephanie on all of her accomplishments and to Dr. Weimper on all of his amazing, like getting the Dykus Award from the private practice section of the APTA is a big deal, so congratulations. And on today's episode, they are uh, talking about the APTA's uh, Vision 2020. So how has the physical therapy profession evolved since drafting of Vision 2020, the student loan debt to income ratio, advocacy efforts to achieve full direct access in all states, fingers crossed, and the importance of lifelong learning and evidence-based practice. So a huge thanks to Stephanie and Michael for coming on the podcast and sharing a really great episode. So thank you and everyone enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your guest, co- guest host today, Stephanie Wyrock, and I am interviewing Mike Weinper, who is the president and CEO of Physical Therapy Provider Network, or PTPN as it's better known, and also a private practice owner for progressive physical therapy in California. 
Uh, the reason that I wanted to talk to Mike today is he won the Robert G. Dykus Award for the private practice section back in 2000. And he has been an instrumental person in practice leadership, innovation, legislative and political issues, healthcare reform, and a number of other areas where he's really had the opportunity to champion innovation and leadership. And uh, one of the things that you know, we know it's 2020 and obviously Vision 2020 has something that has happened in the APTA. It was written back in 2000. And in Mike's uh, Dykus Award speech, he talked a little bit about where he thought the profession would be in 2020 in 2000. And so I'm really interested in kind of his take on the, on where we are today. So Mike, welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy and Smart podcast. And uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks, Stephanie, for the very nice introduction, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you today. Um, I'm, I'm guess, at some level considered by some to be a dinosaur, having got my Dicus Award 20 years ago, and now long in my career, I'm just celebrating my 50th anniversary as a PT. So I hope that uh, some people won't tune up just because of that. Maybe if nothing else, they can see me as a history lesson. In any event, I, I can tell you that back in 1992, um, the California chapter of the APTA, now called California PT Association, created a long-range uh, planning task force that uh, I was uh, honored to serve on. And in that task force were a lot of leaders uh, in the profession in California. Uh, names that were household names then, probably names that most people would not know now, but our plan was to draft a long-range vision, if you will, a crystal ball of what things would look like some 18 years later in 2010, which kind of looking back is, is interesting to look at. And we uh, created, I believe, 18 different uh, points that would be uh, goals, if you will, of the association. And the primary aspects of that working document, which was uh, called PT 2010 by the California Association. I'm sure if you were interested, you could look it up or get a copy of it. Um, then later became the working document for APTA called um, uh, PT 2020. And since we are now in 2020, I wish we would have known than what we know now, uh, because things have dramatically changed in many ways, but in other ways they have not. And so um, I guess I could give you some of the ideas we, we envisioned back in 1992, if you'd like, and then we can take it from there. Yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of what your vision was back in 1990. Okay, so uh, in that document, we said that PTs would be able to evaluate and diagnose conditions, mm, that's true uh, today, perform specialized treatment procedures, and work in teams of physical therapists and PT assistants. So all that did come true. Um, next, that PTs would be able to initiate services subsequent to their own evaluation and diagnosis without referral from or diagnosis by another practitioner. And that in 2000, that had not yet been accomplished, but we, now we know we have independence in practice in almost every state with regard to our licensure. Um, and uh, most therapists are, would be in independent practice configurations with uh, other therapists, maybe who would work in hospitals. In other words, there would be an opportunity to be clinically specialized in, with a board certification, 
which we now know has really grown quite a bit. And they would be sought out, these specialists would be sought out by the consuming public and third-party payers. Not as much. In other words, I don't think our profession has reached to the public well enough to get uh, the public to understand what um, a board certification really means and, and what it takes to become a board certified specialist in our profession. But I'm digressing for a moment. In any case, um, so then I said, we said that PTs would be able to be involved in the continuum of care from the hospital to the home to the private practice. In other words, PTs would have hospital-based privileges and they would be able to go there. And then if the patient went home, many of them would be able to then go to the patient's home and treat them there and then follow them up in the, in the office. And so that was another kind of a idea we, we had um, way back then. Um, so it would be basically following the patient through the episode of care from beginning to discharge uh, and obviously getting them ambulatory and functional. Uh, we also said that, and this is a good one, that PTs would become diagnosticians. And more importantly, uh, that we would be at the entry point in healthcare, uh, which wasn't the case in 2000, but in now in some places it is, that therapists are in fact uh, the musculoskeletal specialists, and because we can do a musculoskeletal evaluation or diagnosis, uh, many states now recognize that, and some insurance companies have recognized that we can be an entry point into the system, which I believe going forward is going to become much more prominent because of the higher cost of care. And actually, Stephanie, the, the difficulty we all experience when we try to refer a patient to a specialist, say an orthopedist or a neurologist, to do an evaluation so we can follow the patient, we find that it can take several weeks for that patient to get in to see the physician, whereas they can usually get in to see us in a few days. So I think that's something that we will see more of in the future, but back then we had it as a dream, but not a reality. Um, I also, uh, we also said that at that time that instead of 24 weeks of internship that were experienced by PT uh, graduates back in those years, we thought internships would last one year. Now that I don't think has occurred, but we have in fact seen uh, uh, fellowships and uh, other levels of, of work where therapists are really going into specialization uh, so that they in fact can um, do things over a year's period of time and then become a certified specialist. Uh, so those were sort of the kind of, I think the basic things that would be of importance today. Uh, we did also, this is a very important one, we identified that in the year 2010, PT would be a doctoring profession. That was one of our, our key points, a doctoring profession. And lo and behold, now our entry level is what? A DPT, a doctorate. I'm very proud to say that I went back and got my DPT uh, over 10 years ago. I talked the talk back in 1982, and I certainly wanted to walk the walk before 2010. So, because uh, that was our benchmark was 2010. So uh, with that in mind, um, I think it's important to realize that we have become uh, doctoral, doctoral people. In other words, we are now at a level of sophistication with our education and hopefully some research that gives the PT of today a much broader view of a patient, their wellness or their disability, and gives them better tools 
which to function, do the uh, evaluation or the assessment of the patient, and then follow up with treatment compared to how things were back when I graduated in 1969. So, um, and I found that when I got my DPT, that um, I, I learned quite a bit. I learned, some of the things that I learned actually um, were more on how to think differently than I had thought previously. And I will tell you that um, some of the things that I learned that were most valuable to me was how other people think. So studying with other um, transitional DPT candidates gave me an opportunity, because I was the oldest person in my class, um, gave me an opportunity to hear people think and how they process, how they analyze, and how they come to the decisions they do, and then how do they communicate it. Um, I like to think I'm a good communicator, but oftentimes I get really wrapped up or wound up and you know, I, I go off on a tangent and I probably go down the rabbit's hole and maybe other people in, the, in today's world are much more succinct and to the point. Um, also, I can tell you that um, I was privileged back in 1975 to get my MPH at UCLA in the School of Public Health there. And I learned a lot about things that are important today, including epidemiology, which we now know is at the forefront of everybody's thinking and um, infection control and making for safe environments, which um, was only very basically touched in my DPT program. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was the differential diagnosis courses I took and the radiological courses I took that gave me a much broader sense for things that I'd studied back previously, or maybe taken some con ed courses, but went into much more depth and, and uh, listening to other people discuss those kinds of things. So that's how things were back then. Um, I can tell you also that insurance companies were perceived to be able to give PTs a lot more latitude. And it's only been in recent years that many insurance companies are now starting to pay for PT that's independent of a physician referral. We're still working with Medicare on that, as you and I know, as a matter of fact, all of us know. And I think the day will come that the feds will start to get a little wiser and realize the cost benefit of the PTP, the PT being an entry point into the system. I think that that's a really great overview of kind of what you guys envisioned back in the early 90s and kind of correlating that with Vision 2020. So. The APTA Vision 2020 had a couple elements that made that basically encompassed a lot of what you said. So autonomous physical therapist practice was one of them. Direct access, yeah. evidence-based practice, yeah. doctor of physical therapy and lifelong education, right. PTs as practitioners of choice, and professionalism. So those were, when the House of Delegates discussed this, those were the main um, themes that they were looking for. So keeping those themes in mind, let's maybe start by talking about the, the doctorate of physical therapy. I mean, that was something that you were obviously very proud of. You talk the talk, you walk the walk. So what do you think, uh, well, studies have been shown that DPT student debt now varies between 85,000 and 150,000, okay? Yes, yes. Do you think, based off of what we're seeing today, as far as student debt, do you think that today's DPT is a good return on investment? And do you think that the salary for the physical therapist has kept up with the increases in training and inflation? Well, I'm very happy to hear you raise this 
question because it's a question that I not only think about a lot, I talk about a lot with my colleagues. And I also talk with students who are um, becoming PTs uh, and people who've gone into residencies for a year post postdoctoral now um, for purposes of gaining a better um, outlook on things. And I must tell you that when we gave thought to the uh, idea of PT being a doctoring profession, never in our wildest dreams did we think about the cost benefit aspects of it as it relates to educational costs. Back then, costs were not inexpensive. I used to teach part-time at USC and then at Cal State University Northridge. And I remember students using you used to complain about the cost of education back then, but it was nothing as compared to today. So to get to your point, I'm sad to say that we have not grown our income levels for PT to the level that they should be given the doctoral training that we receive and the and the debt that usually goes with that, unless you got some kind of a rich uncle or a great scholarship. Having said that, most PTs come in with a lot of debt and then they find themselves in jobs that they don't want to do. And let me, let me uh, just uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on that. PTs in private practice is considered by many to be the desired uh, venue in which to work because patients are coming to you, you have all kinds of equipment and resources and hopefully a nice facility to work in, and the patients for all intents and purposes are ambulatory. Uh, or said differently, uh, you're not going to be ambulating a patient in a hospital hallway and have something happen to your shoe if you can get my drift. Uh, in any event, it seems that most PTs that come out of school today are struggling with where they want to work versus where they have to work. And where they have to often work are those places that pay more because they're less desirable. So as the desirability quotient increases, the unfortunately the salary decreases because of, in part supply and demand, and also to a greater extent, because insurance companies are not reimbursing PTs in the private setting like they are in the hospital, for example. So if I go to work in the hospital, I can make a lot more right out of school than if I go to work for an independent therapist in the same community. Uh, on, the, on the same side, I can go to work for a home health agency, not have this desirable of a work uh, environment, obviously changes from patient to patient, but make better money, but then again, have other costs of doing business. And I think at the end of the day, those who do home health, and I don't mean to criticize those of you who do, but if you look at your cost of doing business and take that away from your income, you find that your true income is much less than you thought it was going to be. Whether it's wear and tear on your car, gasoline, insurance you have to carry on your own, whatever it may be, equipment you might have to buy and so on. So it, it seems to me that the desirability of where you'd like to work and the pay ratio is uh, inversely proportionate. With that in mind, it's, it's, a, it's a function of insurance companies, and this is where I really go down a rabbit hole, and that is why are PTs in private practice paid less? And the answer is because PTs in private practice accept less. They have, and I am very experienced on this, having started PTPN 35 years ago, a managed care company for 
PTs in private practice. And we have always advocated for higher reimbursement. And in fact, we, I'm proud to say, have been successful in getting higher reimbursement uh, for PT and practices that are in our organization than PTs who are in the community who are not in our organization. However, because PTs are willing to accept whatever an insurance company pays, in other words, they don't want to lose business, they accept fees that are much lower than they should. And that has driven down the value of PT in the mind of the insurer, and that's led to lower um, salaries. And so to get to the end of this thought, PTs coming out of school don't get proportionally the kind of income they should with a doctorate. And let's contrast that for just a moment to a PA. A PA has less training than we do. They will usually get a master's degree. They work in a in physician's office, but the way that they can bill under the physician's license gives them much better reimbursement, makes them more valuable to the physician, and therefore their income is oftentimes much greater even out of school, you know, apples to apples, uh, than we get uh, as a PT out of school. Yeah, I think you make a lot of really great points there. I mean, the doctor, the DPT was obviously great as far as, you know, gaining direct access, being more autonomous, but, you know, the cost of education has obviously skyrocketed. Rocketed. So based on, you know, your ideas, what do you think that the private practice section can do to help guide new graduates through the uncertainties of student debt? Wow. Um, there's a lot of things that come to mind. First of all, we as a profession have to be better educated to know when to say no. That's a K-N-O-W and an N-O in the same sentence. Know when to say no. In other words, if insurance companies are offering rates that are below what it costs us to do business or below what we think we should be reimbursed, we need to learn to say no to them and walk away from that business. Maybe it's better to see fewer patients and make more money uh, and be able to compensate our staff better than to take every insurance contract that comes down the road that pays less than it costs you to run your business. Those in private practice who might be listening to this podcast are shaking their heads affirmatively, I'm sure, because they get it. Those who are not in private practice probably don't understand what I just said. I don't mean that as criticism, but I think that at the education level, the um, during your basic education, therapists need to learn more about uh, socioeconomics as it relates to uh, our profession. Supply and demand economics, certainly, and cost of doing business are key points. Uh, in years past, uh, for APTA, I've taught courses on economics, made easy for PTs, because many of us come out of school, even today, without very much in the way of business knowledge or knowing much about economics. And once you learn more about that, things become much clearer and it makes it easier to make decisions that are in the best interest of our profession. So I think the PPS can, it does from time to time try its best to educate us on uh, how to be better managers, if you will, and that includes things like economics. But I think we as a profession need to be top of mind with economics and learn how to um, advocate more as a group, as a, as a profession, not just individuals. Because insurance companies will not look, listen to individuals. They will listen to larger groups. 
um, to that point, larger groups get better reimbursement. To that point, hospitals being really affiliated with one another or a powerful entity as an association get better reimbursement. So I think that getting PTs together to understand, uh, I know APTA has advocated for many years better reimbursement. I, I worked with APTA in uh, different retreats for payers. So in other words, they would bring together uh, a summit, a payer summit they called it, where they bring together many insurance companies. Actually, I did one in Connecticut where you are, because um, that's a sort of a, a hodgepodge or location of many insurance companies. Uh, so we, we, would, we had several speakers um, who uh, knew a lot about reimbursement, including Helene Ferron, a dear friend of mine, and others who would speak to insurers about what is PT, what does a PT do, how do we evaluate patients, what does it cost to run a business, to give these payers a better understanding. But remind you, be reminded, these were not big association meetings. We brought payers together, so we might have 25 or 30 people in a room, some of whom which were larger decision makers than others, but when it came right down to it, we didn't have the ability to follow up with them and push them down the road to where they would be accepting of what we do. So we, today, the cost benefit of becoming a PT, I'm sad to say, is very disappointing. Uh, it, it takes you a long time to work off your debt. Um, hopefully in the future, our government will see fit that people in professions like ours need to have better forgiveness of their debt in return for doing public service for um, the public we serve. Yeah, I think that you make a great point about um, the, the the fact that we as private practitioners need to walk away from some of these more measly reimbursement contracts. And, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot with, with incoming graduates is that there are a lot of private practices that have very high volume. And one of the reasons that they have low job satisfaction is because they're seeing so many patients. So I think that you make a really great point in saying that, you know, maybe it's better that we take fewer insurance companies, see fewer patients, but get paid more because now you're eliminating that burnout and that poor job satisfaction and allowing that new professional or, you know, even if it's a veteran physical therapist, make the money that they actually deserve with the training that they have. Exactly so I think that's right. a good point for them with that. Exactly right. And that's why we need to really advocate politically. And that's why uh, the PT PAC is a very important thing to be involved with because we as a profession, um, can be heard through advocacy. Many, many years ago, I was one of the early trustees of what we used to call APCAC, American Physical Therapy Congressional Action Committee, which is now PTPAC. And I always used to say, and I continue to say today, if every PT would just give $25 to political action, how much more strength we could have? Because it, we live in a world where legislators listen to those who support them support them with votes and support them financially so they can get votes and it's i think it's important that we do get to legislators we have we have a lot of people in congress who are our friends and have been our friends for many years but we need more and when things come up like um, budgetary cuts in medicare where they talk about an eight percent reduction in medicare reimbursement coming in next January, which 
I hope it goes away. Um, I think it'll go away. I pray it'll go away. But uh, if it doesn't, I mean, think about that. You're getting a reduction in your reimbursement, which is not that great today, and they're going to reduce it even more. What's that going to do to salaries? It's not going to help them. PTs in private practice, and this is this is something that I think many people who are not in private practice listening to this podcast may uh, may not may not believe, but it happens to be true. Uh, I've spoken to hundreds of PTs in private practice over the years, and I think many people would be appalled or shocked, at least, to realize that many people who own private practices do not make a lot of money. I spoke to a PT just last week here in Southern California, who was impacted by the um, uh, rallies that were going on with Black Lives Matter. And unfortunately, during that time, there was uh, some looting and pillage went on by some bad actors, if you will, not people who were affiliated with the um, uh, rallies themselves, but people who took advantage of that and broke into places and stole things and burned places. We all heard about that. Here in Southern California was one of those places and other parts of the country, the same thing uh, held true. That PT, when I talked to them and was trying to do what I could do to help them rebuild their practice because their practice had been broken into and made things taken, I asked this individual if they would be willing to share with me how much they make per year. And this person said to me, under $80,000. And I paused for a second and I, I had a sense not only for the, for the problems they were experiencing because of the looting and, and theft out of their office, but for the fact that even under good times, they weren't making a lot of money. And they were working hard. They're working 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes on weekends. That is because they were in a situation where their cost of doing business was almost as high as what they would receive in, in payment. And we know that owners of businesses get what's ever left over after paying all the other bills, including salaries and benefits and rent and all the other things that come to mind. And it's not uncommon to find PTs who own their own practices who do not make a lot of money and yet they take a lot of risk. So it's one of these things that we need Congress to better understand that it's important to support physical therapy as a profession because we are a very valid and important aspect of the healthcare continuum that if we aren't there, um, the cost of care will go up because rehabilitation, I believe, and I'm sure you believe, decreases overall cost of care. So getting Congress to vote that in and, and to budget more money for us in Medicare, and then hopefully getting insurance companies to understand that not every therapist is going to do things on the lowball side of it, but really are going to hold out for higher compensation that they're entitled to. They're going to be more inclined to pay us more. And as they pay us more, it's my idea that therapists should be able, who own practices, to be able to pay their staff more. I've always said, Stephanie, that I wish I could pay every therapist that works in our practice $150,000. I think they're easily worth it, but it's a function of what we get paid. And I can tell you that in my own practice, uh, Progressive PT, um, my income hasn't gone up in over 10 years. 
and I don't make, you know, I don't make a lot of money in it, but it's because I get what's left over after we pay everybody. And I feel that we've got to give our employees reasonable compensation for what they do. And we, we don't use a lot of extenders. We don't do a lot of things that are in the realm of um, uh, doing it on the cheap side, as many people do. Yeah, I think that your points about advocacy are really important because I know APTA has been working on that 8% cut. If you haven't written to your congressman, I definitely encourage those of you listening to this podcast today to log on to APTA's website, whether you're a member or not, um, and write a letter to your congressman. It really only takes three seconds. Additionally, there has also been um, legislation that has gone forward with trying to increase the loan forgiveness for DPT students. Um, APTA is always trying to get us to have pay, be paid more, so that advocacy piece is really important. So that kind of brings me into our, the next pillar, or the next element of Vision 2020, and that's full direct access. So we do have at least some form of direct access in, in all 50 states right now. However, there are three states where the direct access is extremely limited, where you basically can only do a wellness evaluation without a doctor's referral. And then there are about 27 states where you have um, direct access with uh, basically uh, limitations or rules attached to it. And a lot of those have to do with, say, diagnosis or um, with different interventions like dry needling or electrical stimulation, um, EMGs, those types of things. So kind of along that route, how can PPS ensure that we get full direct access in each state? What are some things that the association can do and that physical therapists can do? That's a wonderful question. And I think the answer is create um, stronger advocates in each state because what you're talking now is not about federal legislation, but state legislation. In other words, each licensing act is governed by the, by the state legislature. So having a good group of PTs who can rally and lobby, if you will, or have a lobbyist if there's a big enough state, to meet with members of the state legislature to express how important it is in an effort to control costs in healthcare to give therapists more uh, clinical rights and abilities. That's where it starts. Once you get that, then you can get insurance companies to start to buy in because they realize that it is legal in that given state. Uh, I have seen this happen throughout my career that it's been slow to come. We've been shooting for direct access and at the same time also trying to eliminate the need for there to be physician intervention in certain musculoskeletal situations where we now are trained as diagnosticians to be able to evaluate and treat these things. It's my hope in the future that we get the opportunity from a licensure standpoint to order x-rays to order lab work and things like that to where we can have more information at our fingertips than to have to refer out, um, but only where it's appropriate and where we're adequately trained. To do that, you have to teach legislators what is PT and what is the benefits of PT and what are the cost savings that insurance companies, the public, and um, uh, we all save by giving the opportunity for patients to uh, be strong entry points into uh, the healthcare field. Um, it's certainly fine for us to evaluate a patient 
in in some states you can do like you said dry needling i live in a state california that doesn't even allow dry needling i have people in my practice who teach dry needling to therapists around the country because they used to do that where they worked in other states very frustrating for them extremely frustrating for me but it takes legislation it takes time it takes contributions to your local state um, pack and most of them have it now and to be involved in APTA I think is key that so many PTs uh, I call our nine to fivers they they come in they do their nine to five they go home and they forget about their profession people like you um, and others who are dedicated to making this a better profession for PTs of the future not to mention the public that receives our care uh, are the ones that make things happen and so being more involved in our field uh, through volunteerism, obviously, uh, is a key, I think, to change. And too many of us look to the other guy to do it, whether it's writing a letter to your congressman, whether it's going to meeting with a state legis legislator, whether it's inviting your local um, uh, state representatives into your practice to see who you are and what you do. All of these things bode well for growing our practice. And too few of us, unfortunately, do that. We don't realize that it starts, unfortunately, with uh, regulations and what we can do and how we can do it. <clears throat> so my, my uh, request, if you will, or request, I should say, uh, would be that we as a profession get more involved in our association because the association is the focal point for getting the information to uh, legislators. Uh, it's our association that has the greatest credibility. And I can tell you uh, that one of the reasons I went back and got my DPT was that I saw that when I would testify on a bill in uh, Sacramento here, there would be people with uh, doctorates, not necessarily in our field, but just doctorates, who would speak against what we were doing. And I would get up there and I would have 40 years of experience and have a Master of Public Health degree, but not my doctorate. And um, I will always, and I would like to think I had good presentation and good preparation and knew the facts. And yet it was those who had doctorates that were, uh, or had the title doctor, who were paid more attention to. Now we as PTs have that title. And now we're sort of on a level playing field with other professions from the term being entitled a doctor. And with that credibility, we need now to take more action, we need to spend more time trying to create change. Uh, in my uh, DICUS uh, talk back in 2000, I, I said that people were afraid of change, and it's true. Even today, they're afraid of change, and we all like the status quo. But the reality is that we need, as a profession, to embrace change, because with change comes progress, and we need to progress as a, as a field, a profession. Uh, uh, if you think about things, uh, it takes a village, they say, uh, and certainly in our profession, it's no different. We have to be part of that village. We can't just be part of the tribe. We need to be active leaders of our village. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look back at where we were with direct access 20 years ago, I mean, obviously, we're in a much better state than where we were. But some of the resources that I know PPS has for people if they're fighting the direct access is they do offer grants to state associations if they're doing any type of lobbying 
So if you haven't applied to one of those, it's a pretty hefty amount of money. It's like five or $10,000, which that goes a long way when you're paying a lobbyist to do the work for you. You know, they also have a key contacts program and they offer resources for practitioners that if you do invite a legislator in a legislator into your practice, or you are trying to advocate for a bill, like all, they provide all that information for you on their website and on the APTA Action app. So, I mean, PPS does have resources out there that we can utilize to try to continue in our fight with direct access. And I mean, yes, we're in a much better place than where we were 20 years ago. But like you said, change takes time. And as a, you know, as a young professional, I definitely would love to see change happen even faster. So, um, you know, the more people we can get together and build that village, the faster it's going to happen. In your DICA speech, you also talked about how you envision that physical therapists will be evaluating and diagnosing conditions, performing specialized treatment procedures, and working with a PTA team. And then you also envision that there would be no referral needed by another practitioner. Um, and I know you've kind of covered this a little bit, but give us an idea of where we are, where we're at with this prediction and what you think the future holds. Because as you know, a lot of these direct access bills that we have still restrict our ability to quote unquote, diagnose conditions or even perform specific procedures. So kind of give us an idea of where we are compared to 2000 and where you see us going in the future. Well, um, we are obviously light years ahead of where we were in 2000, just by hearing what you described how things were and what I predicted. And I think from the standpoint of going forward, we need to be uh, cognizant of the fact that we can change things if we put some effort to it. In other words, so many therapists don't do things because they think they, I hear people say, oh, it doesn't make a difference. Or they'll say, somebody else will do it. And the truth is that we all need to be more involved. And uh, I'm one of those key contacts and have been for many, many years. I can only tell you that how rewarding it is to invite a legislator or even somebody who works in their office into your, into your practice to visit with you, see what you do, talk to you about the, your, your, the things that are your barriers to growth and barriers to doing for patients what we should be doing and should have been doing for many years. Um, and it only, it, 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 I think it's more important to understand what you can't do versus what you can do. And you only learn that by going to states or talking to people in other states who have full privileges to do those things and have that true autonomy. So I think that by attending association meetings, for example, PPS is a great example, or um, CSM when it comes back. And, and how should I say this? not just going to the meetings, but talking to people, not just your friends, but talking to people you don't know, but are from other states where you might know there's a lot more progress, ask them what they did and how they did it. Or talk to the leadership in those states, in those state associations, and ask them how did they accomplish what they accomplished? Because it takes a lot of work, and there's a lot of resistance by other professions, be it physicians, be it chiropractors, be it uh, osteopaths, be it even dentists from time to time, resist what, having us grow to where we should grow. And, I, and the key again is educating the public, what we do, so and when you're treating them, 
letting them know what you can do, what you can't do, only because of the laws, even though you might be trained to do these things. And sometimes the best advocacy doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from the people we serve, our patients. So getting people to write letters to their members of the legislature is, is very important. But I think getting more people to stand up, write letters, attend uh, hearings in your state capitol, uh, become more involved, become more aware of the benefits you can create, not only for the profession, but certainly for yourselves as well. And that's one of the reasons that I've been very involved in APTA throughout my career was I felt that I had the ability to change things if I would only work at it. And I was very, I was very blessed uh, you haven't brought it up, but uh, Bob Dykus, for who the Dykus Award is named, obviously, uh, was one of my mentors. When I was a student, I got to meet Bob. He was already very deep in his um, ALS disease, to where he was fully um, uh, wheelchair-bound and uh, uh, tied to a respirator. But that man had so much knowledge. He was one of the first private practitioners, and he, one should only go to the uh, PPS website and learn more about Bob and what a great man he was and what a visionary he was for our profession. As a matter of fact, just to digress for a moment, he is the one who created the ALS Society nationally. He was the inventor of that. He had a second uh, a, a profession he was in. He was a, um, a motion picture producer. In his later years, when he couldn't be a PT, he went into producing motion pictures. A lot of them had to do with rehabilitation and things that we do. They weren't necessarily featured like films, but he got involved in, in that kind of uh, communication. So it always goes to the fact that I think some of the best PTs are the ones who are best able to communicate with their patients, with the public, with our legislature. Those are the PTs who really do the best because if you're good with your patients in communicating, you're able to motivate them to do the right thing, right? And communication is something that we need to study more, perhaps in school. Uh, I teach a lecture on communicating with different generations because as I become part of the older generation and looking at the younger people, I see how you and others in your generation and younger generations communicate with one another. And it's much different than what my experience is. I grew up with out computers, I remember the very first calculators, believe it or not. When I was going through school, in high school, we used an abacus uh, and a slide rule. And then going forward, we used uh, a uh, Texas Instruments brand uh, calculator, which was very expensive and very elementary looking back at it. That's an idea of, of technology. And technology and communication, are, I, think, I think, are very interwoven. In other words, as technology increases, communication becomes dependent on that technology and we tend to communicate less with one another. Or said differently, I can see my son-in-law and daughter at our house sitting on the couch waiting for dinner to be made and what are they doing? They're texting. And I said, well, who are you texting? He said, I'm texting him. I said, why aren't you just speaking with one another? And that's just the world we live in. And then all the little acronyms, all these uh, simple things that uh, you know uh, are, are part of the lexicon today, of today's younger people, 
older people don't necessarily know. And when treating an older patient, it's, it's key that you speak to them in a communication form that they're going to understand and don't assume they understand something you're saying just because you're saying it. And the same is true for older therapists, like myself, talking to younger people, you have to motivate them in a different way. Younger people want it now. They want things quickly. They're used to getting information quickly. You can look something up on Google uh, and get a, an instant answer on something. Whereas in, back in my day, uh, an encyclopedia salesperson used to knock on our door trying to sell my family a big set of 30 books of encyclopedias, which really didn't tell much to us what we needed for today's knowledge. Uh, and I don't think those people are around anymore. Uh, it's all, if you want an encyclopedia, you've got it. Just look up something in Google or another search engine and you've got instant, you got too many answers. Sometimes you get different answers for the same question. But with all that in mind, communication is key to success. And we as therapists need to communicate better, not only with our patients, but one another, with our legislators and with the public in general. And to that point, having better PR public-wise, and I think APTA is trying to do that now that we're into our 100th year, starting our 100th year celebration, or centennial celebration, I think you're gonna see a lot more information going out to the public through electronic media and social media to where we gain a higher visibility with the public. Um, I had the TV on the other night, I was watching a game show, and one of the contestants was a PT. And uh, he was a young PT, I can tell that. And he didn't win a whole bunch on them. I think it was, I, I believe the show was uh, Wheel of Fortune, actually, which I don't watch too often, but it was on. And I heard the word physical therapist. And just like you, whenever you hear that word somewhere, even if it's in a restaurant, you hear somebody talking about their PT, your ears perk up. And you sort of start to eavesdrop a bit. And we, we as a profession, uh, don't hear that word in the public as much as we hear about doctors or other things. So I think the public needs to have a better awareness of who we are and feel comfortable talking to us. And we need to feel comfortable talking to them and educating more about who we are before they have a need to see us. I think uh, you make some really good points about the communication aspect. And that kind of leads into the next element of Vision 2020, which is us being practitioners of choice. So I, and, and kind of going off of that, with communication, it's too bad Bob, Bob, Bob Dykus isn't around anymore to make the next hit uh, healthcare drama on physical therapists. I mean, how many physical therapists and healthcare dramas do you see walking patients or stretching patients? You know, oh. it's never really, they're never main characters in, you know, like Chicago Med or Grace oh, Anatomy, you know? Every time I see a PT portrayed, in these situations, I cringe because, first of all, they're wearing, and I hate to say this because I'm, I'm going to uh, take an issue with some of you, they're wearing scrubs. <laughs> I don't think, I don't, scrubs when I grew up were for people working in surgery. Now everybody wears scrubs. So you, if you go to the grocery store, people are wearing scrubs. They, I, I think people not even in healthcare wear scrubs sometimes. But I think we should look more professional, we should be more professional, and the public will respect us better if we act more professional. And so there are sometimes PTs who are brought in um, on dramas to be a technical advisor. Um, I have been in that position 
before, uh, twice, and I have talked to directors um, and producers about what they need to show. And I can only tell you that what you tell them to do and what they end up doing sometimes is different because maybe they don't have the right equipment or the character, they, they thought they already lined up costumes for their characters. It, it becomes very frustrating. But getting in on the front end and getting the public to understand who we are, hopefully through drama and maybe through, you know, like I say, um, public service announcements or ads on TV uh, where we're portrayed better or having the opportunity, many of you are in smaller cities and towns, your local newspapers and television are hungry for local news. And you may be doing something you don't even think second thought about, but it's newsworthy. Maybe you just purchased a, a very uh, important piece of equipment to help with ambulation or suspension or um, uh, something technical electronically to create new opportunities to treat patients your local TV stations would love to demonstrate, come to your clinic, film you doing that, and have it as a segment on their TV show. And many of us don't even think about that. So, uh, and I, again, I even in Los Angeles market, I've had the opportunity to do that a couple of times. It can be a little bit overwhelming, a little bit scary, but you know something, at the end of the day, you feel really good about it, and how you come across is much better than you perceived you were gonna come across <laughs> when you were getting ready to do it. So. Uh, don't be shy, but reach out to your local uh, media and try to get them interested in what you do because what you do, what I do, is very newsworthy and very important for the public. Yeah, and you know, obviously people are following what the media says and listening to the media. So I mean, the media is, uh, has been a very powerful force that you can utilize to spread the gospel of physical therapy so that we can become the, the practitioners of choice in, for the musculoskeletal system. And so the people actually know that PT means physical therapist and not like personal trainer or part-time. Amen. So people actually know what it means. In your yeah. DICA speech, you also stated that PTs would be recognized by payers as, di as diagnosticians and entry point into the healthcare system. And mm -hmm. I know you talked, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but how do payers recognize physical therapists and how does today's how do today's payers recognize us compared to back in 2000? Where are we at with that? Well, back in 2000 and, and even in days since, payers felt we needed to be treating only under a physician's referral. If you looked at insurance policies that you might have, or if you spoke with payers, they would say that PT was a covered service when provided under the auspices of a physician referral or diagnosis. Today, many of those policies from the same payers do not have that language. So because of the direct access laws and because of therapists in given states talking to their insurance companies, their payers, they've educated them to where certain payers are starting to realize the benefits of PT first. Um, and let's just take, uh, um, uh, substance abuse and chronic pain. Uh, we know as musculoskeletal experts, there are lots of things that we can do for the patient to avoid surgery, to avoid uh, downstream costs like uh, expensive imaging that may be unnecessary. We can certainly 
get the patients treated properly and get them in a mindset to where pain is not top of their mind. I have a book sitting right behind me on my bookshelf. It's called Explain Pain. Are you familiar with this book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, That's a very okay. familiar book. Okay. And this is a very good book for people to read. Uh, it's The authors are David Butler and Lorimer Mosley, and uh, they're down um, in um, Australia. But they, they talk about the, the dealing with the mental side of pain, the cognitive side of pain, if you will, and how to best treat your patients and de-emphasize the pain and, and emphasize wellness or health. And we need to do more of that as practitioners. And as we, as we can educate our insurance companies that by sending the patient to PT for four or five, six visits, we can avoid surgery in many cases. What is the cost benefit to the insurance company there? Insurance companies listen to money. And I know this from my experience for many years of working with many of them and speaking with probably too many insurance companies to not only remember, but to count. And they are driven by dollars. And they do not put enough emphasis sometimes in their underwriting to allow PTs to do the things we do, we can do. And it's they're very short-sighted because they end up then forcing patients to go to a physician first, wait several days or weeks to see the physician where the patient's only getting more deconditioned and rather than seeing us first. And we have the opportunity and the knowledge on doing things that get the patient out of the problem or fixing the problem, if you will, from a non-surgical standpoint. So insurance companies in some cases become much more enlightened and other cases are still in the dark ages. And those who allow us to treat without referral and pay us for what we're worth are the more enlightened ones. Insurance, some insurance companies that I've dealt with now in recent years are paying for outcomes. There's the concept of pay for, for, pay for performance or P for P. I like to call P for O. It's really not what you do, the process of what you do, but really the outcome that you get. So if you can get a great outcome with fewer visits, then insurance companies should be willing to pay you more because A, you reduce their cost and, and not only of what you did in terms of your true cost, but in terms of what it would otherwise cost them to treat the patient going forward. So I like to pay to pay for outcomes, P for O. And that's why we as a profession need to do more in the way of outcome measurement, whatever tool we use, and be able to communicate to the payer community the benefits of what we do. So uh, I'm going to go back now to the mid-70s, again, when I got my master's degree. Uh, we learned even back then that the definition of quality in healthcare was composed of three things. And the author of that was a fellow who's no longer with us. His name was Avita Stanabedian. He was a physician. He was very involved with the New England Journal of Medicine, D-O-N-A-B-E-D-I-A-N, if you want to look it up. And Donna Bedian, even, even back then, said that quality in healthcare was three things. Structure, which is where you do it and what you use in terms of equipment. Process, what you do. Okay, and outcome or the results. So we've always been able to measure structure and we've been able to measure, measure the process we do, but not enough of us over 
my career have been able to truly prove that what they did was a benefit. And I think that that's one of those things that we have to focus more on, proving the benefit of PT through outcomes. Or said differently, because of what we do, patients get better quicker. And that leads us really nicely into the next element of Vision 2020, and that's evidence-based practice. So obviously, APTA has done a lot over the years to try to improve how we're, um, how we're measuring outcomes. So you have the outcomes registry, CoStar was created. If you look at how much literature has been put out for, if you, ser if you search uh, physical therapy, even in Google, it's you know an exponential growth since even 2000, and even the larger growth, if you think about it from even the 1970s when outcomes were first described. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, we've been working on for a long time. I think that obviously it's come a long ways, but we still have confirmation bias in our literature. We still have guru practice that people are practicing. We have treatment fads that really don't have a lot of evidence behind them. And we have right. practice variation that continues to affect our outcomes and affect our profession. How can PPS help offset this? How can we continue to go forward to mitigate some of these things that are occurring? Well, that's a that's a that's a sixty four dollar question, as we used to say in my era. Um, I think it's I think it's important that we need to. You talked earlier about one of the goals of PT twenty twenty is lifelong learning, and I I see too many people in our profession who don't come to meetings of the profession, whether it's a local uh, meeting in your area, whether it's a state uh, conference, uh, whether it's CSM or PPS meetings, too many of our colleagues never go. Or maybe they went as a student because their school paid for them or somehow or another they were encouraged to go and they never ever go. If you think about people you went to school with, Stephanie, you never see them again. And you wonder how are they getting their education? One of the things that has occurred uh, during um, the last 15 years, I would say, is the requirement by states that each PT, in order to continue their licensure, must have continuing education, a certain amount, and it varies state by state, as we know, and what things have to be parts of that continuing education, again, vary by state by state. But at least we're being forced now as a profession to continue our learning. Having said that, and having taught uh, in different venues in different ways, I can tell you there are people who are serious learners, and there are people who we call lazy learners. The lazy learners are those who will buy the cheap level CEU kind of stuff, and um, do a quick read on something and take a test and not really spend the time to investigate what was being offered and maybe some of the quality of the content that they're learning is really not up to date either uh, versus those of us who will go to con ed meetings we will do things online now there's a lot of opportunity pps throws a lot of things out apta has a lot of things uh, I'm a member of the orthopedic section section and the oncology section they have lots of stuff going on that, you know, there's too much of it. There's, there's, like, um, there's like education overload, so you have to be selective. But do choose things that I think will be beneficial to you and that are evidence-based. So it brings back to the evidence-based part because too often I've heard people get up 
at meetings and start to talk about things. And then when challenged on what's the, what, you know, what's the basis of your comments, they sort of stammered and they said they gave answers that weren't really appropriate. So we do need more focus on, on lifelong learning, uh, which we're being mandated to do, but some people take the easy way out. You know, people, we all have people we know who will take the high road and others will take the low road. And the low road may be the easier road, but not, may not be the get to the right end. So we want to challenge ourselves to learn more each day. And I can tell you that when I went back and got my DBT, I thought it would be fairly easy. And some of the things I, I was exposed to, I'd already learned in my master's level. But I can tell you a lot of things that I learned were new concepts that I had never even thought about. And that goes to the idea of this lifelong learning and evidence-based practice. You learned, most of you learned in school, all about evidence-based theory and practice. And some of you embraced it very well and other of you sort of gone a different path. So I would say, take a step back and, and look, at, look at the research that's coming out. There's all kinds of journals. And that's another thing I, I have to digress on in a moment. And that is, here's a question for each of you. How many journals or publications that are healthcare oriented do you read or subscribe to? If you say only PT, then I think you're making a big mistake because there's so much literature and so many things that are appropriate for what we do in our field and validate what we do in other journals and research is being done that we miss the boat by not looking at, at other uh, professional journals or other. Uh, modes of information, or even attending um, meetings for physicians and so on. Uh, I used to specialize in the treatment of hand injuries, and so uh, I would go to the uh, Society for Hand Surgeons, and they actually had a, a PT sub or PTOT subset of that uh, that uh, my friend Dr. Susan Michaelovitz was very involved in. And she got me involved, and I would listen to physicians. We we have collegial meetings where PTs and physicians would interact to try and come up with the best ideas. And many of us don't really have any contact with physicians except when we're talking to them in the halls of the hospital, or when we're going out to market them, uh, or we're trying to take lunch to them. We don't talk really about about concepts and about theory and, and what do you base this upon and what can we do uh, to learn more about the benefits of what we do. And that gets us to the idea of each of us having the challenge to do some research. Research is fascinating. It doesn't pay a lot, but you can still do research in your clinic. You can be parts of research projects. If you just look for them, they're out there to take advantage of. And if you do that, it opens your eyes so much more. And I think a lot of the things that you've touched on kind of goes with the last element of Vision 2020, and that's professionalism. So when the House of Delegates originally defined what professionalism means in Vision 2020, it's that we as physical therapists and physical therapist assistants are consistently demonstrating core values by aspiring to and wisely applying principles of altruism, excellence, caring, ethics, respect, communication, and accountability by working with other professionals to optimal, optimize health and wellness in individuals and in communities. So obviously one of the big focuses of APTA has been this uh, optimizing society or optimizing movement by, to impact society. And we've been kind of taking more of a population health 
kind of perspective, trying to get out of the silo of physical therapy and move more into the interdisciplinary healthcare, healthcare professional realm. Where would you say we are as far as our professionalism goes in 2020 compared to where we were in 2000? Oh boy. <laughs> I think many of us have, because of our increased education, gotten more credibility with the medical profession. They tend to listen to us more rather than seeing us as a technical uh, entity or a technician versus a professional. Um, although I can tell you still today, physicians oftentimes don't see the benefit that we do, even orthopedists. Um, and we, we have come a long way in some, in, with some physicians, but we've missed the boat with others. I think it's critical that medical schools especially if you're doing an orthopedic residency, that the residents spend time with a PT. I was in a uh, well-known physician's, uh, internationally known physician's office uh, recently with my wife who, when she had her shoulder surgery. And uh, she, he has no less than two fellows at all times. And occasionally a PT will visit and come in and, and be there not to get paid, but just to talk and work with the physicians, educate the physicians and the younger ones, the, the fellows who are going to be out there real soon uh, in their own practice. We need to do a better job of educating physicians. I said that a little bit earlier, but I really mean it. We can do it when they're in school, when they're doing their fellowships. We can invite them into our practices. We can take, we can go to doctor's offices and shadow them much more than we do. We can go into surgery with physicians and, and talk to them while they're they're doing their procedure, learning why they're doing their procedure. And sometimes a light bulb will go on in your head and say, oh, I get that. And that's, I think there's something I could do a little bit differently with, my, with your patients when I'm treating them by seeing what you're doing surgically and listening to what your concepts are. So I think there's a lot more caligulism that goes to being a professional. And to that point, if you don't see yourself as a professional, others aren't going to see you as one. And too many of us lose track of the fact that we are in a, when you say it's a profession, a profession requires, one of the key points of any profession um, is that you uh, learn, you keep current, and you give back to society. And giving back to society means more than just treating people. It means educating the population, doing things from a wellness standpoint, or, or avoidance of injury. Uh, I guess I'm going back to my public health days where one of the key things is getting people not to have to see you clinically as a, a post-op or whatever, but helping people to avoid surgery and do things the proper way. Ergonomics, for example, is a good, a good use of our skills and what we've learned as I sit up in my chair properly. Um, and doing things that people just don't think about. And when we break away from just being the PT treating person and branch out to meeting with other professions, talking to them about what are their challenges, what can we do to help them, or thinking about things we can do to help them, communicating better intercollegially at different levels, then we go a long way towards not only building those relationships, but most importantly, helping the patients we serve. So... It's one thing to say your profession. It's another thing to give back to society and find different ways to give back. Well, I, you know, from this 
conversation, obviously we've come a long way since 2000. We've achieved many things that Vision 2020 set out to achieve, but we still have a lot that we yet need to achieve. So kind of on that note, Mike, you know, what is a clinical pearl that you can kind of leave all of us with? What is some advice that you could give a young graduate or um, uh, somebody new in the profession that maybe you wish you would have known when you were coming out of school? Well, that, that's an easy question to answer because I'm, I oftentimes ask my younger PTs, how did I become successful? <clears throat> I say, very simply, through volunteerism. Volunteering your time to help your profession and help those we serve. Whether it's going to a health fair and educating the public. You ever done that? Fascinating what they don't know and how the aha moments you see in the public when you spend two minutes with them. Uh, screening students, uh, preseason uh, athletic screening, another great opportunity to, for volunteerism. Physicians you're working with, they say, oh, that's how you do that. That's how you measure that. I didn't realize that. And th that's another idea, again, of getting involved. Getting, I talked earlier about legislation, getting involved in legislation. Getting involved in your association is what I think makes you successful. And, and to that point, I think that the best jobs that PTs get are not the ones they see um, through a Craigslist or through see on the association advertisements. It's from talking to other therapists, word of mouth, learning where are the best jobs to be had. And the only way you do that is not staying in your little house, if you will, but getting out and talking to the PTs. That's like I said earlier, getting to know other PTs. Um, uh, there's this uh, PT pub nights that I see around the country. What a great idea. I've gone to them and they're actually fun. Uh, I stood out in the rain. They had an outdoor one here in Southern California and it, you don't get a lot of rain here, but that particular night we all were standing outside of this venue um, drinking our beverages of choice, getting soaked, but having a good time and it's very memorable. And getting to know other people and volunteering just goes a long, long way, I think, to learning more and learning what needs to be done. If you can learn what needs to be done and then not put it on somebody else, but say, I'm gonna take responsibility. Again, getting back to I'm a professional, I need to be professionally responsible. I need to be the one who does this. And I know you're one of those people, I'm preaching in the choir, Stephanie, when I say this, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But so many people who might be listening to a podcast like this, don't quite follow it. So my challenge to each of you would be get involved in your profession and spend a little time here and there away from family, away from work, away from your social activities and give back to your profession. That's part of being a professional. And as you give back, the more time you give, the more you get. And I like to leave this thought with people and that is for all the thousands of hours, I guess at this stage of my career, I have given to my profession, whether it was the local district or my chapter or the National Association or the private practice section or other sections I've been involved with or doing things in the public realm, getting involved in, uh, I was involved in a uh, college board so people got to know me as a PT and as an individual and got to know more about PT. 
getting involved in society rather than just going home at night, turning on the TV or turning on your computer or playing games, getting more involved with people and trying to do good things for the public benefits you directly. Those are some wise words spoken by a true visionary of our profession. So thank you so much, Mike. And thank you for all of those who listened to this episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm your your guest host, Stephanie Wyrock, and I hope that you stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.